As you know, today I'm going to be talking about some things that will probably make me feel a little bit vulnerable. And they'll probably make some of you feel a little bit nervous and anxious and a little bit uncomfortable. So thank you for being willing to come today and to talk about some people that God loves. Thank you for being willing to be a little bit uncomfortable today as we talk about some people. I want to make a deal with you. I'm going to be honest with you and I'm going to be transparent with you. And Becky and I commit to that. So the discussion doesn't end here this morning. If you have questions or comments or concerns, we ask that you would contact us or talk to us. And many of you know if online people, my email is jack at lakeeffect.church. We look forward to hearing from you if you have any comments or questions. So let me start a little bit easy today. I'm going to share some things that are pretty personal about me. So we'll start a little bit easier. I'll tell you something about me that probably a lot of you know. I easily get distracted. <laughs> Very easily. There's one reason I manuscript my message word for word. It's because I know myself well enough to know that halfway through the message, I will get bored. And I'll just walk off stage and probably vacuum. And that's just kind of what I do. So I, I, that's just kind of a little bit how I am. And it makes reading very difficult for me. It's hard for me to sometimes concentrate reading because my mind's always going five different directions. So what I have to do when I read, I have to be very strategic when I read. If I read a book, I have to go and say, what am I looking for in that book? I always ask myself a question when I read, and I especially have to do that when I read the Bible, because if I read the Bible without asking questions, it means nothing to me. So usually when I open the scripture, I'll start asking myself questions, and I look for answers in that text. It's a really beneficial way to read. It works really well for me, but I'll tell you, to be honest with you, sometimes I find my answer right away, and that's really good, and other times I read, and I don't find my answer, and it gets a little bit frustrating because... I don't have time to figure it out. There's one question that I've had a lot when I read the Bible, and it's from Genesis 3, that I'll read this passage, and I always have the same question. I'm never able to figure out the answer. A lot of you are familiar with Genesis 3. That's the story of Adam and Eve. They sin against God. After they sin, they realize they are naked, so they cover themselves. And I've always wondered, why did they cover themselves? If you read the Hebrew text, the word for covered means that they made a loincloth, that they made like an apron that they put around their waist. And I always wondered why they didn't sin in that part of their body. I mean, if they're going to cover something that sinned, why not cover their mouth or maybe cover their hands or better yet, just cover your entire body after your sin. Why did they just cover that one part of themselves? If you grew up in Sunday school, you saw the pictures. That's actually accurate Hebrew. They covered that part of themselves. So I've always wondered that question. I've kind of read a few different responses over the years, but I never found anything that good that satisfied me. It wasn't until about a couple months ago I was listening to a teacher by Dr. Kurt Thompson. Kurt Thompson is a Christian psychiatrist who specializes in the field of shame and neuro, neurobiology. He's a really smart guy, a smart path counselor, and a really good pastor. And I liked his answer. He said, when we experience shame, our first reaction is to the cover the parts of ourselves that are different from other people. And then we hide. I thought that was a really good answer. That when we experience shame, one of the first things that we do is we cover the parts of ourselves that are different. And then we hide. And often, the followers of Jesus, we not only hide, but we also hide from God. And that's why God's first answer to Adam and Eve was, where are you? Because they were hiding. So before we begin today, I want to ask you a question. Are any of you hiding? I'm going to share with you today my story of shame. I'm going to share with you my story of how I tried to cover and hide. But I want to ask you the question, are any of you experiencing shame 
that causes you to try to cover yourself and hide as well. I think it's really important that we wrestle with that question, are you hiding? Because it's easy to do. And I believe that God gives each of us a desire to be found. And sometimes, the best way to be found is to know that you're hiding. So I want to share with you today my story of being found. But in order to do that, I have to share with you my story of hiding. That comes first. So let me take you to that place. I got to bring you back to middle school. And if that's any surprise that your childhood trauma started in middle school, I don't know what else is. I was excited for middle school. I, I, I hated school, but I was excited for middle school. Middle school was going to be fun. You get your own locker, put your own books in there, get to go from class to class. You no longer have recess, you get breaks. That was going to be fun. And the one thing that my middle school had going for it is that it had a vending machine. There was nothing better of middle school than that vending machine. I mean, it was, it was the 70s. It was a beautiful piece of technology. It only took coins. Didn't have to scramble trying to fit those dollar bills in there. Didn't have to worry about putting your credit card in there and wondering the rest of the day if you bought lunch for everybody else in the school. I loved the idea of having a vending machine. I could buy my own snacks, didn't have to rely on trusting my mom was going to put the right one in there. But little did I know that that vending machine would become the metaphor that I would use for the next three decades to describe pain and discomfort in my life. See, my new freedom in middle school was captured by a bully. It was one of the first days of middle school, and I was excited to go to that vending machine, get what I wanted from that vending machine. And on my way to that vending machine, another student called me a fag. And I thought, what's that? I didn't know what that was. And I didn't think my peers around me really understood what that was, so maybe that would be okay. Nobody really understood. So I got my red licorice and went to class. But that was just the beginning of the nightmare. For the next two years, every time this boy would see me, he would call me a fag or gay or homo, whatever corruption of the word he could think of. That would be my label for the day. That was difficult. Now, the good thing that was going on The good thing that was happening is I didn't really know what gay was. I didn't know what a faggot was. I didn't know what homo was. So it really didn't bother me that much, except I was a smart enough kid to know it's probably not a good thing what he's calling me. And I don't think most of my classmates knew either. I went to a good Christian school in Grand Rapids. But let's say they probably didn't do the best when it came to sex education. I think we were a little cautious in our school of what to say. In fact, in our little, in our little uh, book on sex ed that we had in sixth grade, they showed a picture of how horses mate. <laughs> I could never figure that one out. Trying to teach two-legged human beings how four-legged animals mate just doesn't really work well. But that was our sex education back in Grand Rapids in the 70s. 
I think it was our Christian school's way of saying, let's combine sex ed and abstinence all in one hour. (laughs) Because most people walked out of that sex ed class and thought, how is that possible? (laughs) So I guess it did kind of work well in some way. But those were painful years of middle school. I think I spent most of my time at school uh, doing one of two things. Either I was trying to figure out where he was or how I would confront him if I saw him. So what I did, I spent most of my time at school just trying to navigate the hallways, trying to figure out where is he, where am I at all times to avoid him. But I also would go home every night and I would play out these scenarios in my head. If I found, if I ran, if I can got in front of my bully again, what I would say to him, that I would have the perfect comeback. I would practice that. I would rehearse that all night. I would have this great comeback for him. But every day for two years, I never had a comeback. Instead, I would just go home with more bruises. But that wasn't the hard part. The hard part wasn't being called a faggot for two years. The hard part wasn't the shame and the experience I was experience. The hard part wasn't the hiding. The hard part wasn't trying to figure out what I would say to him. The hard part was figuring out what all those words that he called me, what they really meant. That was the hard part. Because I figured out he was right. That I was gay. That everything he called me was true. Here I was, I was 12. I was scared. I'd been bullied for two years. I was confused. And I was gay. I had no idea how it happened. And I had no idea what to do about it. So like Adam and Eve, I tried to cover myself. I tried to cover what was different about me from the rest of the world. But I had a problem. I wasn't invisible. So I couldn't cover myself. So I thought high school. That will will change things. Go to new high school, new address. Things would all get better. Unfortunately, my problems and my desires continued to follow me. I didn't really know much about being gay back then, except I was very convinced of one thing, that God hates gay people. And by then it was the early 80s. And that's a pretty logical conclusion for a 15-year-old when you hear the banter of the religious right. It's pretty easy for a 15-year-old to come to the conclusion that God hates gay people. For many on the religious right, they blame the problems in America on gay people, and the gay community was not only the enemy, but it was the target. And I was 15. So the only thing that I really knew what to do was to pray, which is a good thing, but prayer is kind of complicated when you think that God already hates you. And how do you continue to pray to a God that you don't have much faith in? Because after all, he never stopped my bully, and he never made me straight. I had a complicated relationship with God. See, my only real hope was that my feelings would pass. So I thought, well, maybe college would be the answer. I'll move away to college. I'll live at college. I'll be a whole new thing. Maybe then my life will get in order. But unfortunately, all my feelings and my desires followed me. And in fact, my desires were actually increasing So I thought, well, maybe when I graduate from college, 
Unfortunately, graduating from college was not the threshold to heterosexuality either. Kind of at that point, I knew I'd run out of possibilities because I figured out there was no magical on-off switch to turn off my feelings. But it also became very aware to me that to be gay in the church was not a safe place to be. So after college, I stopped asking why. I stopped expecting that I would change, and I started to say, what am I going to do now? Because I wanted to follow my desires. That felt normal. That felt natural. I wanted to do that. I was tired of living in shame. I was tired of living in fear. And the words of my bully still haunted me years later. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll just move away. I'll move to some big city. I'll pursue my desires. Occasionally, I'll come back to Grand Rapids and pretend to be straight in front of my family. That was my plan. That's what I was going to do. Until somebody invited me to go on a men's Christian weekend retreat. And I went. It was kind of surprising for me. That's something that I typically wouldn't do. I don't like those kind of things. And at the time, I drank a lot, and I knew there wouldn't be alcohol, so I really didn't want to go. But I went anyway, and actually the surprising thing, I actually liked it. There's one point in the weekend I actually thought it made me straight. I was pretty convinced it did until a few days later. I'm like, nah, that didn't work. So I got asked to go on the weekend again. This time they said, would you work on a weekend? I thought, great, another shot. I thought I got straight again. Nope. A few days later, it was all back again. Then I got asked to work on another weekend. But that weekend changed my life. It didn't change my life because I got straight on this weekend. It changed my life because I met Jesus on this weekend. In a way I never did before. Let me tell you what happened. I was on the weekend and everybody was going to go to bed and go to sleep. And another guy on the weekend, Ron, he prayed for us. He said, let's let's go hang out and talk for a while. So I thought, cool, I'll talk to Ron. Ron, I knew Ron in college. We went to college together. We probably weren't friends. We probably knew each other's first names. That's probably as far as our relationship went. And probably we're at a lot of same parties together. And so Ron said, hey, let's go outside and talk for a while. And I thought, sure, I'll talk to Ron. Ron, to me, was a guy that had it all put together. He had everything going right. He was your example of perfect. So I thought, sure, I'll go talk to Ron for a couple hours. And over the next couple of hours, he got honest and raw with me, and he shared his story with me. See, Ron wasn't as perfect as what I thought he was. He was not gay, but he had this huge encounter with the Lord that transformed his entire life. He was a completely different person. I'd never heard somebody share a testimony like that with me, of what God had done in his life, and I thought, wow. Even though Ron didn't have the same struggle I had, I thought, well, maybe, just maybe, God could do for me what he did for Ron. But I knew that would require me telling Ron my story. So, I waited. Probably took me about a month or two before I went and I shared my story with him. I remember preparing to talk to him. And I honestly thought he was going to tell me I was disqualified. I expected that answer. But he did something different that I didn't expect. He showed me love. He showed me compassion. He showed me kindness. He listened to my story. And he asked me questions. He showed me acceptance. And he showed me how to begin to put Christ first in my life. See, up to that point, everything that was first in my life was my sexuality. 
how to hide that, how to conceal it, how to get rid of it. And he began to teach me how to put Jesus first in my life. And I followed his advice. And some of you might be wondering, did telling Ron make me straight? It didn't. I was hoping it would, but it didn't. But it did teach me how to depend on Christ. And that's what I needed. I'm still not straight. Now, to become straight, that was pretty much the expectations of the church in the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s. The ideology was that gay people would become straight if they dealt with their past and they followed Jesus. That was pretty simple. Deal with whatever issue or trauma you have with a child and follow Jesus, and he'll take care of you and make you straight. I was even told that that could happen as late as my honeymoon night. Now imagine that little surprise after you get married. There's a whole other story when it comes to that part of our life. I don't have time to get into all that. As Becky and I were putting the service together, we're like, how do we, how do you condense this? So anyway, if you have questions, just save them for next week. Next week, I do want to talk about marriage because I know a lot of people, their first question is, how are you married? That's a good answer. But that's going to take a whole, that's going to take a little bit of time to kind of talk about. But the, the idea was that gay people could become straight. It was what it was called reparative therapy. The whole goal was you find out what went wrong in your childhood, you pray that God heals it, and boom, you have a straight person. It sounds like a really good plan. Sounds like that really should work. Problem is, it doesn't work. Maybe it worked for a few people over the decades, but it really doesn't work. See, reparative therapy, it had good intentions, but overall it was a disaster. And it hurt a lot of people. See, one of the biggest problems with reparative therapy is that it's based on one big assumption. And the assumption is false. The Bible never promises that all gay people will become straight. God never promised that if you deal with your childhood problems, you would become straight. The Bible never says as you grow in your relationship with Christ, as you grow in your disciple of Christ, that you would develop same-sex attractions. The Bible doesn't say that. See, the problem with reparative therapy is that all of its teachings were extra-biblical. They made claims and assumptions that simply were not accurate. But after decades of reparative therapy where gay people that become straight, it made people just wonder, why not? Why doesn't God just make all gay people straight? That seems like a really good plan. That seems like a lot easier plan. So people continue to ask, well, isn't it God's goal that all gay people become straight? See, that question is usually rooted in the assumption that to be, to simply be gay or to simply be same-sex attracted is sinful. In other words, the quest to make people straight is driven that by the idea that if you have a homosexual orientation or if you have same-sex attractions, that in itself is sinful. So the idea was if a gay person wants to follow Jesus, they need to become straight first. This is really important to hear what I'm going to say. The Bible never supports that idea of having a gay orientation is sinful. There is no scripture to support that if a person is same-sex attracted, that they are sinful. What many people did was they would take the scripture that prohibits sexual behavior, and they would say, if you have a propensity towards that behavior, then you're automatically sinful. That doesn't make sense. We don't do that with straight people. But people had fun doing that with gay people. 
It was kind of an easy way to discredit a gay person, say, if you have same-sex attractions, boom, you're sinful. But we haven't done that with straight people. See, our attractions and our orientations, they do not make us guilty of sin. Being gay doesn't mean that you do sexual sin. The same way being straight doesn't mean you do sexual sin. A person becomes sinful when they use their sexuality in a way that God never intended. That causes sin. I think it's important to hear this next point I'm going to make. The word gay doesn't mean gay sex. The word gay refers to an orientation. And I'll tell you, this is a complicated word study here. A lot of our definitions of words are informed by culture, not always what the dictionary has to say. You ask a younger person what gay means, they'll tell you it's an orientation. You ask an older person what gay means, and generally they'll tell you it's behavior. You ask a very conservative person in the church what gay means, they'll tell you it's a behavior. You ask a person outside of church, they'll generally tell you it's an orientation. People use the word gay to mean a lot of different things. And it can be very confusing at times. But if you're going to if you're going to enter into the LGBTQ discussion and you want to have an influence in the lives of gay people, you're going to have to learn to ask questions. You can't assume that because you have a label that you understand what that label means. You're going to have to ask questions and ask a lot of questions and stop making a lot of assumptions because a lot of times people's assumptions get them into a lot of trouble. So if God doesn't make all gay people straight, and if having a same-sex same orientation doesn't make a person sinful, could it be that heterosexuality is not the goal? Let me repeat. If God doesn't make all gay people straight, and if having a same-sex orientation does not make a person sinful, could it be that heterosexuality is not the goal? What if a gay person becoming straight is not the goal? Could it be that God never planned to make all gay people heterosexual because heterosexuality is just as much a fallen condition as homosexuality? Perhaps both orientations fall short of God's intended plan for sexuality. Perhaps both orientations need God's plan of rescue and restoration. Amen. I think it's helpful to understand the Bible never brings up the word homosexual or heterosexual. Those are not biblical words. You will not find those words in those Bibles. Those, the words did not come into play until the late 1800 by psychiatrists. God never divided people based on their sexual attractions or sexual desires. God doesn't come to rescue people of certain orientations. God comes to rescue all people. See, the hard reality is this. All people have disordered sexual desires. Every single person has disordered sexual desires. Straight people and gay people. There's not one single person who hasn't experienced temptations or lust or inappropriate sexual desires. Every single person is going to need restoration in their sexuality. Just because a straight person... Just because a person is straight doesn't make them void of temptations or lust or inappropriate sexual desires. Simply being human gives a person the capacity to sin. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's God's goal to elevate all people, 
to a place of freedom where they can make the best choices in the midst of their desires and their struggles. What if God had a bigger goal? What if God's goal went beyond your orientation? What if God's goal is that your relationship with Jesus would become more important to you than your sexuality or your orientation or your desires? What if God's goal was for all human beings, no matter what their desire, no matter their orientation, was to live a life in complete surrender to Jesus Christ? That each person would steward their sexuality and their sexual desires in a way that honors God and brings us true joy. See, I believe that's God's desire to put our relationship with Christ before any of our other desires. See, I think most Christians would agree with me that being gay or same-sex attracted does not necessarily make a person sinful. Instead, your behaviors is what causes you to sin. And hopefully after listening to me, you're realizing that God doesn't automatically make gay people straight and it's not something that's promised in the Bible. So that brings us to the biggest question of the day is what is my sexual ethic? I realize that this answer here is divided churches, divided denominations, divided families. So I'm not going to tell you my sexual ethic yet. I will today. I'm not going to tell you yet because conviction is not the place to begin the LGBTQ discussion. We can't start with conviction. The place to begin is to always start with compassion. And I think as a church, we have often led with our conviction. There's absolutely nothing wrong with conviction. That's good. But I think the best way to model Jesus' behavior is to lead with compassion without compromising your conviction. But way too often we like to lead with conviction and we turn people off. See, the reason that I'm standing here today is because of compassion. It's because of the grace of God. It's because of the love of God. It was the kindness that Ron and Susie showed me 30 years ago. It was the kindness that Susie's parents showed me 30 years ago. It was the kindness that Becky showed me. It was the kindness that my friend showed me, who I shared my story with. See, if you want a sexual ethic to follow, it has to start with love as the foundation. If you want to start with conviction, it's not going to work very well. Earlier, Donna read my scripture for me that says you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Did you hear what that said? The entire law and the demands of the prophets are based on the two commandments to love other people. We need to lead with love and we need to show other people love. So people ask me, what is your sexual ethic at Lake Effect Church? I want to be honest and tell you as well. I do believe that marriage is between one man and one woman. I do believe that sex is for marriage. I do believe in the historical definition of marriage and sexuality. And I also recognize that some people might want to turn me off right now. That a lot of people want to stop listening to me right now because they don't agree with my sexual ethic. I would ask you to not turn off yet. I would ask you to continue to listen to me because there's more to the message of Christ than just the sexual ethic. 
I want people to know that they are welcome in Lake Effect Church no matter what their sexual ethic is or no matter what their behavior is or no matter what their ideology or never what their preference is. See, no person should be excluded from church because of behavior. No person should be excluded from coming to a church or feel like they have to cross a bridge and get cleaned up before they come to church. See, my goal as a pastor is not to change anybody, to try to force anybody to my sexual ethic, but my goal is that as a church and as a community, we would show you who Christ is. And you can make your decision on your own. But each person should be allowed to have a place where they feel safe and secure to tell their story without judgment, without being mocked, or without being bullied even more. That's what church needs to be, a place to listen to people. So you might ask, why am I telling you my story today? See, I agree with a brilliant author, Nancy Percy. She says, what Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies that they give to the surrounding world. What Christians do with their sexuality is one of the most important testimonies they give to the surrounding world. See, I could have lived my life without sharing the story publicly. That was my plan. I never planned on doing this today. I never would have been a pastor if you'd have told me this would come someday. I had a good plan. I had about 20 people that knew my story, and that was probably about good enough for me. But the truth is, I never told my story because I was still too ashamed. I never told my story because there's still a part of me that was hiding at the vending machine. About two and a half years ago, I was sleeping, and at 2.30 in the morning, I heard a voice say to me, do you love me? I knew it was the voice of God asking me that question. Because it's the same question that Jesus asked to Peter in the book of John when he said to Peter, do you love me? And I knew that was a loaded question. I knew what Jesus was saying to me that day is, would you surrender everything to me and trust me with your story? And I thought, oh no, no. I wrestled with bed in bed till the morning with that. I got up and I thought, well, I'll tell Becky. Maybe I can get out of it. Maybe she'll say, no, that never happened. I told Becky what happened to me in the night. And she said, I always wondered how long it would be before this day would come. Again, there's a whole lot more to that story that we'll get to at another time. So, I made a desperate call to a friend. And I said, we got to talk. His name's Brad, and for the last two years... This would be a good time to go back to you. <laughs> I said to Brad, we need to talk. Brad's a pastor in Grand Rapids. I said, we need to talk. And so we got together for coffee. And I quick told him my entire story in five seconds, hoping he would say, don't ever tell anybody. Instead, he leaned back in his chair. And with all the wisdom of Solomon, he looked at me and he said, how would your life be different if you didn't have to worry 
that people, that people were going to figure out that you're not straight? How would your life be different if you didn't have to worry that people were going to figure out that you're not straight? I was speechless. Because I realized at that point I was still hiding. Here I was in my 50s, separated by 40 years from that vending machine. And I was still hiding. See, part of the reason I'm sharing this story is because we need to have conversations about sex and sexuality normalized in churches. It should be easy to talk about sex and sexuality and desires in the church. Church shouldn't be a place where people feel like they have to come to you and pretend or come to you and lie. But church is a place where people can be honest about what they're feeling and what they're experiencing so that their stories can intersect with the grace of God. The main reason... that I'm here sharing this story is because my wife I have an amazing wife And fortunately, she was raised in a family where the Great Commission was a priority. It wasn't something you talked about. It was something you did daily. My wife grew up in a family where the Great Commission was on their car license plates. And for Becky, this has never been a topic, a conversation It's always been about people that need Jesus. And Becky's always been for me sharing my story. If it would help move a person closer to Christ. But this wasn't just my decision and Becky's together we made. It was a family decision. We couldn't do it without the support of our kids. Because as you know, this is a little bit of a controversial subject here. So we had the conversations with our kids. A lot of you know Nick, so Nick was okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) Then there's Sam. See, for Sam, if there's a reason to wave a flag, he's all in. (laughs) So Sam is going to wave his flag all day long. Right, Sam? Then there's my youngest son. He's a remarkable young man. Two years ago, Becky and I sat down to tell him my story. What's a 15-year-old going to say? We're a little bit worried about that one. But we knew we needed to tell him. Do you know what his his first reply was? After we told him, the first thing that he said was, when do we get to tell people? That's an amazing response for a 15-year-old. He knew he could receive some negative feedback. He's well aware of what this could cost him. But he's been saying for the last two years, if it's going to help other people, we need to do it. Our youngest son 
is pretty much led Becky and I into showing love and kindness and compassion to people that are different. So we're grateful for him and his willingness to say, I'm all in. Even when he knows none of us know what to expect tomorrow. So thanks, Trey. <laughs> See, the beginning of the message, I told you I easily get distracted. That's not my identity. That's not who I am. That's simply a little bit how I am. That's how I interact with the world. In the same way, not being straight, that's not my identity. Being same-sex attracted is not who I am. It's simply how I am, and that's how I relate to the rest of the world. And I'm okay with it. I don't need to become straight. That's not my prayer. That's not my request. I have Jesus. I'm all set. But it hasn't always been easy. It took me a lot of years to figure out that I have everything that I need. And as you are all aware, there's often a big gap between a person's desires and figuring out what they really need. See, if we're going to do what God has called us to do, we need to create a culture of love and acceptance. A lot of people in the church have hurt a lot of people in the gay community. Probably none of you have done that. But we need to be the people that can undo the damage that has been done. As a church, we need to show love and acceptance. As a church, we need to lead with compassion for the people that are different from us. We need to lead with love. We need to live with hope. We need to listen to people. We need to listen to people's stories. Church needs to create a culture where people feel comfortable talking about who they are and what they experience. We need to create a culture and church where people feel loved and accepted. Where they don't have to hide. But they can be honest and they can be vulnerable. That's why Becky and I and Trey and Sam and Nick were doing this. Because we want to love people. and love them well. And I'm grateful for many of you, for all of you that have come today and listened online because I know you want to love people as well and show people kindness. So I ask Beck to come up and close out this message for me. Jack, I, I've been with you a while, and I know the courage that that took. And I want to tell you that I am so proud of you for being willing to do this, because I think it's going to make a difference. I honestly do. So thank you, Jack. You know, I just want to pray in closing, and as I do that, I just want to say that couldn't quite figure out what exactly I should pray. Thank you for setting me up for this, Jack, until I grabbed my father's Bible. And I opened it up. I was bequeathed this Bible when he passed away. And like you said, Jack and my mother is here today visiting with us from Texas. That the Great Commission always came first. That's the way it was for my family. That's the way it is for our family. And when I grabbed his Bible, it opened. 
to a very well-worn page in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, that says, Therefore I exhort first that all of you giving... I'm going to do that here. I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them, intercede on their behalf, and give thanks for them. It goes on to say here in 2 Timothy that for this is the good and accept this is good and acceptable in the sight of our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And that includes everyone made in the image of God, in my opinion. That's what it says here. So, Father, I thank you for today. I thank you, first of all, for Jack and his courage. And, Father, I thank you for leading him to this day where you crafted and created him to the place that he could stand before these people and those watching online and tell the truth about who he is and tell the truth about who you are. And so, Father, I just pray, Lord, as it says here in 2 Timothy, for all people, I ask you, Lord, to help them, as it says here. And, Father, in the name of Jesus, I give thanks to you for every one of them. And in the name of Jesus, Lord, I just ask that these words that Jack has shared with us today would be plant a seed in our heart that would cause the seeds of the desire of the Great Commission to grow and also what you have said that he quoted as the commandment that is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself, the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based in these two commandments. Father, teach us to love. Teach us to care. Teach us to be your people that will stand, yes, in truth, but will stand in love and will stand in goodness and following the example of Jesus in kindness. And Lord, we just commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.